Sisters and brothers, ladies and gentlemen, friends, neighbors, comrades, all citizens of the world, wherever you're going, wherever you've been, and wherever you're at, we welcome you to the Live from the Heartland show on Spotify Podcasts. New episodes air Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. I'm your host, Michael James, encouraging you to take the chain from the brain to get back in the people's game because it's time to move from the lower level to the higher, from the shallower to the deeper, from the one-sided to the many, and from the abstract to the concrete. So without further ado, let's get it on. Hello, everybody. I'm Michael James, and I'm welcoming you to another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. We're out of Chicago. I'm up here in the very blue, wonderful 49th Ward. Um, we do love Chicago, and we're glad to be here. We hope wherever you are, you had a really good Christmas and a good New Year's. There was a lot of celebrating going on. I confess to having fallen asleep before midnight, only to be awakened by firecrackers in the very near vicinity of my abode. I hope that people have had a good enough dose of football. We're getting near the end. We only have to watch one more game between Michigan and Washington to see who is the national champ, so to speak. And on the pro front, we got one more Bears game, and uh, then there'll be some playoffs and all that fancy stuff that I'm sure We'll watch. I've got a, a couple of really wonderful uh, guests coming on today. They're both two guys that I met in the summer of 1966 when I was working in Uptown with the group Join Community Union, a project of the late great Students for Democratic Society. I should say there is a new Students for Democratic Society, and we have had them on the show. Anyhow, I met both Bob Lawson and Steve Goldsmith when we were all young and full of energy and full of excitement, enthusiasm for building an interracial movement of the poor. We were about social, economic, and political justice. And both of them have gone on, uh, Steve Goldsmith and Bob Lawson, to do serious organizing in communities, in the labor movement, et cetera. We're going to uh, hear from both of them about what the work that they're doing now and the role going forward that all of us can play for this big election, which will give us a choice in November between a semblance of democracy or out-and-out fascism. On the good front, going into the new year, there are a lot of people who care, who are very active in doing good work, uh, and we're going to try to bring you a number of those people over the next year as we have throughout the past. On the negative front, some of our challenges are not only to get people who have been shackled to their fear and doubt for a long time, but get them to see that just because you are upset about, you know, money, cars, payments, all that kind of thing, doesn't mean you throw a guy out of office who has generally done a good job and bring an out-and-out fascist. So that's our theme for the next year. I think I'm going to leave it at that and just say we do have to pay attention to what's going on in the Ukraine, what's going on here in Congress and Republicans refusing to uh, allocate money for both the Ukraine and Middle East unless they get some changes on the border, which should be a very separate issue. The pending border situation is heavy and it affects all of us. And I'm not going to point any fingers other than we could get a lot further if the Republicans were a little more cooperative. Okay, we'll be right back with a little bit more information and our first guest uh, after a little short musical break. Be right back. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial. We're back. We're back with more live from the heartland. Uh, this is our uh, post New Year's Eve show. We're uh, uh, recording it uh, a couple days after New Year's. And uh, we're really glad to bring on someone who I first met, as I said at the opening of the show, back in 1966, 
Steve Goldsmith, and he's hanging out in California, but he's just back from, uh, I think, a year in Italy, in Florence, Italy, because he was, he and I were going back and forth, and when Florence came up, I said, oh, that's my mom's name, and he was going, oh, where is she? I'll go, go see her or something, and turned out he was in Florence, Italy, and um, tell us a little bit about what you're doing over there, Steve, or what you did now that you're home. Well, it was only three months, but um, and my wife was teaching a uh, uh, semester abroad in um, on the uh, she taught a class in film on fascism and resistance. And so I read a lot about the the resistance movements in Italy and learned, wow, you know, uh, plus also how it was such a turning point in history with the development of science by Galileo and modern art and things like that. and it's an amazing place. What was your sense of the politics there? Because speaking of fascism, I thought they had elected a woman who uh, pretty much is on the right side, on the wrong side of things on the right there. Yeah, well, the only place she didn't win, I think, or one of the only places was Florence. And good. So, um, so that was good. And they did, I, I found out about it a little bit too late, but they had a an evening, a large evening march uh, against what was happening in Palestine, led by, uh, I think, a Catholic priest and a rabbi and an um, imam. Uh-huh. So do you get a lot of walking in while you were there? Yeah, I, uh, 58 days out of the 90, I did 15,000 steps or so and lost 12 pounds. And we also marched in uh, London. We went to London for a wedding, and there was 300,000 uh, free Palestine marchers. Yeah, it's heavy. It's going on. Well, let me uh, let me go back to the, our early days together. And we both showed up in Uptown. And I'm not sure how you got there, where you were. I had been uh, uh, gone to school at Lake Forest, uh, heard about uh, SDS when I went to Berkeley to go to graduate school, got involved with SDS and the Community Organizing Project Join uh, in the summer of 66. How about you? So um, I I went I uh, went to the march on Washington in 1963 and that kind of confirmed my parents were leftists we fled to Louisville because my father was blacklisted uh, in New York as a communist and then um, he had been he knew Paul Robeson and Henry Wallace so I had that kind of tradition and when I hit that march it really resonated and so I went to Mrs. I went to Atlantic City for the Freedom Democratic Party thing in '64. Then I went to the Mississippi in the fall and came back to the University of Chicago and started with Heather Booth, uh, SDS Friends of SDS chapter, and I mean Friends of SNCC, and then the SDS chapter uh, and organized buses to go to the March on Washington in '65. Then the SDS office moved to uh, to Chicago, and so I worked in the office for um, a few months and was on the National Administrative Committee. So when they, somebody said, I said, well, what should I do? And they said, go uptown. And so I got involved in JOIN and then um, uh, was there for a couple years. Uh, I finally I finished Chicago. University of Chicago, and then um, as JOIN began to be more the community saying, we want to be here, it also happened that uh, the draft board said, um, uh, your number is up, And but I had gotten conscientious objection status, and um, they gave me three choices, and one was Florence, Kentucky, but the other one was Louisville, so I went to Louisville where I had grown up, and as it happened, the guy started a movement inside the um, military uh, at Fort Knox called FTA, Fun Travel and Adventure, or as most soldiers knew it as Fuck the Army. And so we had a coffee house there, and Peggy Terry came down and gave a speech in the white neighborhood that we organized when she was running for vice president. And the Klan came and attacked us, and Ann Braden and Carl Braden. Um, so we had to run off from that. And I think you were there. I, I certainly was. And I've talked about that many times. I'm, what I remember is there was probably 40 or 50 people white uh, there. And Peggy and I were singing, We Shall Overcome. I'm strumming the guitar. And the next thing I know, the police disappeared. 
And all of a sudden, people were throwing rocks at us. And we, uh, I remember going back to the Braden, Carlin and Braden's uh, longtime uh, progressives, um, who you knew well. So what happened then? You working in the coffee house? What did you do for the next uh, 50 years or so? <laughs> so, um, so after... Um... So we we kind of had a version of rising up angry in Louisville too with my roommate Fred James, and then um, I stuff happened in a personal relationship which I wasn't too proud of. But so I went off to kind of think about this was seventy what to do with the rest of my life and uh, wound up in visiting my sister for two weeks, but turned into two years and met some people who said, well, what we should do is. Uh, Go among the people. Um, the kind of the um, the idea. There were two trends in SDS. One was go blow up bathrooms, and the other was go out and organize. And that was the one I like. So I went to work, and they they weren't paying people. There weren't jobs like uh, Greenpeace and things like that. So right. uh, the place where you could get paid to organize was go get a job in a steel mill. So I worked in a steel mill for ten years in Northwest Indiana, trying to do rank and file organizing to try to make the union more progressive and against discrimination and segregation in the mills and things like that. And um, so then when that kind of played out, uh, I was part of uh, something called the October League and um, working with, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, Mike Klonsky and all those people around the country. And when that kind of fell apart, um, my first wife who had lived in India as a uh, married to an Indian revolutionary in the countryside, uh, but had to leave because she was white and he had to go underground. So I, we met in a discussion group. And so we got married and came to Chicago um, and Northwest Indiana, and she worked in the steel mill also. So we said, well, what can we do? And her first husband came along and said, hey, why not do educational tours to India? I can arrange <laughs> uh, off the you know unusual stuff over there, so we did that for ten years, and then um, um, when that kind of played out, I didn't really. Uh, it just was what it was, but um, so I, my brother-in-law, who is this great mediator, Ken Cloak, who is one of the leaders of the Berkeley speech move, free speech movement. I know Ken, yeah. Um, was on top of the police car and all. So he said, well, um, why don't you take this class in mediation? So I took a class in mediation and then this job opened up. They were trying to get somebody to start uh, mediations between kids who have committed a crime and the victim of the crime. It's called restorative justice. And so I started that program and it's still going. We've done tens of, I'm not I've retired from that, had the good luck that it was uh, administered by a city government, so I had a CalPERS pension. But we did tens of thousands of mediations where the kid learns what the victim, what his action was for the consequences for, and then they do an agreement to make things right. And it's shown to cut recidivism by 50% or more. And now the LAPD, big bad LAPD, has an agreement with the agency. It's called CYS, um, and they have a website, CYS-LA, and it uses .org, um, uses volunteer mediators that we train, and then they would, um, uh, the, uh, the LAPD, if the kid goes through the program, they um, can say they've never been arrested. They file the arrest. And then we added parent-teen mediation, which was very effective for kids in conflict with their parents, and um, peer mediation and other conflict resolution programs with the idea that uh, the justice system is just toxic. And so we try to keep kids away from it, keep them in school and out of jail. And um, I did that until 2016. And then when I retired from that, I kept working there for another um, few years as a consultant. And then because I knew about mediation and I had joined Rotary for just to make my boss happy. But then I found out this is an amazing organization, about a million two of people who are um, there mostly for to serve the people. Service above self is their slogan. And they 
work to try to make things better in their community. That really impressed me. Let me jump in for a second. And uh, yeah. I did want to say on the uh, conflict resolution, I had one experience with that when uh, uh, yeah. some kid uh, broke in and stole ice cream, et cetera, from a stand we had down along the beach. And uh, we they worked out really well. Uh, and the Rotary Club, uh, tell people what the Rotary Club is, because uh, when you mentioned it earlier, I remember when I was at a hot rod club speaking to the Rotary Club, and then later in my Heartland Cafe years, uh, speaking to a Rotary Club here in Chicago. And both experiences are real good, and you are wowing me with all the good things you shared earlier about the Rotary Club. So tell the listeners what the Rotary Club is. Uh, okay, and and just as a note, Bernadine Dorn was doing a similar program in Chicago to the Restorative Justice Program. Um, but um, and the goal of that, by the way, was to transform not just to serve individuals, but to transform the whole juvenile justice system in Los Angeles, which they've made great strides. The you know big change from the 1992 when we started till today. But uh, Rotary, and again, I saw this as a, tempt, a place to do mass work, like the steel mill, like Rotary. Let me see what I can do inside of Rotary as an organizer. Right so on. it's got 1.2 million members in every town and city in the world, 197 countries, and they're most famous for eradication of polio, down to a few cases in Afghanistan and Pakistan. But they did things like... Um, had an in inoculation day in India, and 150 million people in a single day got shots because of Rotary's work. They advocated and got the World Health Organization and UNICEF involved and the Bill Gates Foundation involved. Um, so they both did direct inoculation type, immunization type work, door to door, and also um, advocacy for it. Then they have six other uh, areas of focus, maternal health, um, water and sanitation, um, economic development, and in more recent years, peace and conflict prevention and environmental sustainability. And because of my mediation stuff, I said, hey, I was part of something called Mediators Beyond Borders International, which is a growing organization. It's been around since uh, about 2010 or something, and founded by Ken Cloak. No, 2003, when he saw the um, paratroopers being dropped into Iraq in shock and awe, he said, well, wouldn't it be better if we were dropping in peace builders? So I set out in 2013, uh, the, the president or international president of Rotary that year had the slogan, peace through service. And he had three big peace conferences. So we set out to make MBB, little MBB, a partner of this massive organization with a billion dollar foundation or multi-billion and so after six years, I and some other people succeeded in making MBB, which is now one of seven international partners, seven or eight, like UNICEF, um, uh, Peace Corps and things like that. And this little MBB that does principally training of women peace builders to take part in ceasefire processes and truce agreements in peace projects in their local town and, and country and city. And so I took part in a training in Indonesia for women and, and some men peace builders from seven, um, what do you call it, uh, different countries, which got funded by a Rotary Global Grant. And so if you have any of the listeners have a progressive idea, go wrote, Rotary generally meets once a week. Um, they used to be all white men, you know. And now yeah, that's what I remember. <laughs> yeah, and and 1988, a woman won a case in the Supreme Court, breaking it open. And now about a third of Rotary are women. The they've had international uh, presidents who are women, lots of district governors and things like that. And their diversity is at the place that it's growing is most famously is uh, most robustly is in the third world. So after I got that finished. Um, let me get to my most recent. Let me let me before you go to the most recent stuff. Let me just ask. Uh, you know, my impression of the Rotary basically were the businessmen in my town, in Connecticut, and they were white guys. They were older, of course, than to us. Um, but what's your uh, sense of uh, how Rotary people might vote and where they're at politically? 
Well, I would say, particularly in the U.S., they're probably 50-50 or maybe, probably with the Trump uh, experience, they're probably 75. Trump, I mean, the Trump and the right-wing Republican really goes against uh, rotary uh, philosophy. Um, service above self is their slogan, and also um, they have uh, uh, the four-way test. Is it the truth? Is it fair to all concerned? Will it build goodwill? And will it be beneficial to all? So how can you be a Republican with that as your ethics? And 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 so there's a lot of controversy and, you know, and, and oh, we shouldn't be involved in controversial subjects and all, but um, that's what the, the kind of mediators beyond borders is. Let's have peaceful conversations on difficult subjects so as to get these two different, there are, I would say, two different viewpoints in Rotary. Um, the most clear example was uh, uh, the district governor in Los Angeles put on, after George Floyd put on the newsletter, all lives matter and got all kinds of shit for saying, you know, because that's kind of code for, you know, black lives don't matter. Yeah. And so I don't think people mean it that way necessarily, but I no, but she didn't mean it that way either, yeah. but she got a lot. And so people quit a club and then they came back and then they, they took it off. And, and so we had some really good dialogues and saved that club from splitting up over what does that mean? Okay, Steve, hit us with your current work, uh, so, so environmental after, work. Yeah, so after about the same time as I was wrapping up the MBB stuff um, and Rotary stuff, there was an explosion at the Torrance Refinery, which is in South Los Angeles County. And as a result of that, I learned and the community learned that there's a chemical there called hydrofluoric acid kept in large quantities that an 80,000 piece of equipment came within five feet of the uh, HF tank. If it broke, it forms a low hanging cloud and kills within a few minutes, many, many miles away. Um, up to five, six, 10, 15 miles away, it can still kill or permanently injure. It's used in 41 refineries in around the United States. Most don't use it, um, but so we've been fighting for that, fighting at the local um, air quality regulations for legislation. And now in the next week or two, um, the EPA may release a rule to uh, require conversion away from HF. Um, and it, if, uh, if anybody wants to see what it, the effect could be, there's a movie called The Railway Men on Netflix. It's a four-part series and shows what happened in Bhopal, which is a very similar chemical. So my approach is to keep organizing. And what we've learned in every one of these struggles is that unity is decisive. It Disunity, people fought over small differences, severely injured the uh, ability of this local organization, Torrance Refinery Action Alliance. If you want to know more about that subject, go to TRAA.website. And there's videos on it and everything tells you the whole story about HF. But the main lesson is, and for any organizers out there, is persistence to keep at it. Um, it may take, you know, you have when you go into a battle, you have to assume it's going to be 10 years before, you, you know, and there's a Marcel Mastrioni, the organizer movie, where he says, you don't, they don't let you win the first time, you know, and, um, <laughs> you know, and joins battles against police brutality. And here we are, you know, 40 years later, and we're we're making inroads about police brutality. Um, uh, I don't think we've solved it yet, but in, so in each battle, you have to assume that it's going to be a long battle. So prepare for that. Make sure your life uh, situation is such that it sustains you and um, and keep work, whatever it is, whatever somebody wants to do. I've learned in this uh, TRAA thing, somebody said, well, let's do this. Let's go leaflet there. Okay, let's do it. Oh, let's, and like right now, somebody's got a bunch of plants and I said, oh, we've been through that. Well, that didn't do it. You know, let the person whose idea it is go for it, support it. Whatever action is where the the success flows and and just keep reminding, you know, the slogan, the, the thing, uh, what is it? The people united will never be defeated. Well, the term, the key word there is united. If you're not united, you're not going anywhere. If you are united, you might win, even against big, powerful oil industry, 
we fought them to a draw for four years. And when they divided us, that's when they were able to stop our advances. So that's my lesson for anybody who's involved in the movement. And it's the best thing. It's a purposeful life. Here I am at 79. I am going off to play tennis, so I've still got my health. But <laughs> the thing to do is, you know, is live life for purpose, for meaning. Uh, because we, most of us in the U.S. have food, shelter, and clothing covered, and and some of us have love, and um, we can all have purpose. Steve, that was really great hearing all these things you've done, and uh, I would like to invite you back on to be more specific on any particular thing you're interested in doing. Oh, but, uh, always welcome to, and I keep in my heart all the joint people. That's where I learned. Uh, the 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 love of the people, the power of the people. See those folks marching. See those people going down to the welfare office to fight for somebody else's welfare check. You know that was too good. You're a hell of a guy, and thank you very much for coming on live from the heartland. Everyone else, stay tuned. Uh, we're going to be right back after a short musical break, and I mean short. Uh, we'll be right back with our next guest, another former joint organizer, the one and only Bob Lawson. Okay, Steve, we'll see you in a few. Thanks a lot. Thanks for doing this. shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth... Hey everybody, we're back with more Live from the Heartland and it brings me a lot of pleasure to bring on another old pal. Uh, another person I met back in the organizing days in Uptown with Joint Community Union and that would be Bob Lawson who's been on this show a numerous times. I try to get him on over and over to be our labor guy and fill us in on what's going on in the labor movement. Sometimes he goes for it, sometimes he doesn't. But most recently, just the other day, Bob sent me an article out of the blue uh, from a magazine called Fast Company. And it's about the worst union busters of 2023. Goes on to say organized labor won major victories across the country this year, but that just inspired companies to fight back harder. And then it goes into most egregious examples. So I took this as a, a possible way to get Bob to come talk about that. And um, he agreed, and here he is. And uh, how about, Bob, start off with some good things that happened in the labor movement this year. Um, as much information as you want to lay on us, and then we'll go to the some of the negative things and the challenges. Yeah, um, yeah well, thanks, um, and Happy New Year. Uh, <laughs> that uh, um, there has been uh, a huge upsurge uh, of union organizing, of people who don't have unions uh, fighting to get unions. Uh, that's the most exciting thing that I've seen in the labor movement in a long time, that everything I think there's like now, what, three, you know, the huge numbers, 9,000 Starbucks workers uh, have organized for a union uh, REI, I think there's eight REI stores that have organized for a union, uh, a big hospital, uh, doctors are starting to organize for unions. As a, as a country, the, as the uh, wealth and power inequality has increased, it's taken uh, a little time for people to figure out that the power we have is to organize. So this organizing is going on in spheres all over the place that um, university grad students, uh, um, professors, uh, in almost every sphere uh, that people are organizing. And so that, to me, that is really exciting. And what happened uh, with the uh, United Auto Workers strike, which was very creative um, and showed that not only does organizing matter, but when you win, that you can win huge improvements in people's lives. Uh, that I remember when uh, we were young, that um, in the time that the auto workers were negotiating with the big three auto companies, everyone would look in the paper every day or uh, to find out how much of a wage increase they're going to get because that set the standard for the society. 
And so when 30% of the workers were organized, it wasn't only organized workers that uh, won the benefits. It was all the other workers as well who got benefits uh, because the employers were trying to keep up. So the excitement is around the organizing and it's not just the, um, you know, the UAW that won big in their strike this year, the Kaiser healthcare workers did, uh, the UPS workers did. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it's exciting and it's exciting when you talk to particularly young people uh, and these days, almost everybody's young, according to me, uh, <laughs> that, uh, um, you You're know, young to me, buddy. <laughs> uh, that uh, you know that they understand how unfair the society is and how unfair the uh, the wage situation is, and we're not even talking about the you know Uber drivers and so-called gig workers who, under the uh, pathetic uh, labor laws in the U.S., don't even have a right to form a union. Um, and so the, the good news is that people are fighting back. People are learning how to be organizers in every aspect. And a lot of people who uh, may not have the right to organize a union uh, under the law are figuring out legislative ways to do it, where, you know, home care workers are winning wage increases in some cities. Uh, people are winning, uh, you know, gig workers are winning wage increases. Uh, other places, people are using their power, like some, I believe it was the state of Washington uh, passed a law that employers are not allowed to have captive audience meetings, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, the so that's the good news is a lot of momentum, a lot of optimism, a lot of people learning to to organize and a lot of people understanding the value of organization. Um, and I think it's also opened uh, eyes that the way the UAW did the strike and uh, the way they projected themselves as, uh, you know, we got to fight back, it's for the whole working class, et cetera, uh, is, all, is all good news. Well, we'll go into the UAW a little bit later. I want to uh, do a quote from that article you sent me from the Fast Company magazine about the worst union busters in 2023. Uh, and they said, uh, according to the Economic Policy Institute, Employers spend $433 million per year on union avoidance consultants, outside specialists who are brought in and paid hundreds of dollars per hour to convince workers not to unionize. Talk a little bit about uh, the challenges that the labor movement and people wanting a better deal in life are up against. Um, it's uh, People who haven't been through it don't understand um, what a, a difficult, uh, difficult situation, people who don't have a union, um, because the law is so weak. Um, the law essentially uh, says, and I, I have to give uh, the, um, na na the National Labor Relations Board under Joe Biden, and particularly the under the gen general new general counsel, a lot of credit for trying to work within the, the law to strengthen it for workers, but essentially that uh, employers can uh, break the law at will uh, with almost no penalties. For example, um, although it's illegal to fire somebody for organizing or discipline them, if somebody gets fired for organizing a union, um, maybe a couple of years later, if they win their case, uh, the employer has to uh, put a letter up on the wall apologizing uh, for firing the person um, and maybe hire the person back. And the only back wages they get are wages that they, if they have another job, those wages are subtracted. So for a company that's trying to scare the workers um, that they can fire somebody and it's uh, particularly for these big companies, but it's almost no penalty at all. And I, the other thing that I think people don't realize um, and I can go into more detail about how the uh, uh, anti-union consultants work. They've been doing the same thing for uh, decades. But um, the other thing, and, and I think that the article is getting at and that a lot of people don't understand, is that uh, employees winning a, a union election where they've uh, said that they uh, want a union, the majority of them vote to have a union, the federal government says, yes, you have a union, and the employer has an obligation to negotiate. 
there's nothing that says that the employer has an obligation to come to an agreement. Um, and so uh, the employer can stall, can lie, can do whatever they want. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, if they are convicted of um, not bargaining in good faith, which is what it's called under the law, the penalty is that they have to bargain in good faith. Um, that's the only penalty they face uh, for not bargaining in good faith. So the typical play and what you see going on uh, at Starbucks, at Amazon, um, it looks like at REI, et cetera, is that the employer um, stalls and stalls and stalls um, with high turnover, a lot of the leaders leave or they continue to harass the leaders or people get demoralized. Then after a year, um, the employees quote, have a right to have what's called a decertification election, which is to uh, get rid of the union. And surprisingly enough, that quite often um, after the employer has stalled for a year and brought in uh, people that it, it selects, um, that they have decertification campaigns. So it takes the union resources, again, to fight another campaign uh, to win that election. And then the, uh, you know, the penalty for the employer for having uh, lost that election is that it has to bargain in good faith again. Um, so I don't know, I forget what the latest figure is, but it used to be something like only 50% of the unions that won elections ever got first contracts. Um, hopefully that's going to change uh, because there'll be much more public support and so on. But ultimately, um, to have a, a, a fairer society, we're going to have to change the labor laws uh, in this country. Um, you know, that's not on the horizon now. So uh, what we have to do is just support the workers in these campaigns for a first contract. Let's go back to United Auto Workers, uh, because they certainly set the standard it seems like, and they've uh, they've talked about uh, Sean Finn, who was a kind of a, the opposition candidate within the union, and he won. And he's been really out there, and he's been very good. He's talked about going after Tesla and other, and some of the even the big three plants uh, in the South. Now you are actually a veteran of some of that organizing in the South. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about the UAW and the plan going forward and the hurdles that they face? Um, I have to say, I don't exactly know the plan of the UAW going forward, which is a good thing that people don't actually know the plan. But um, uh, the the general theory, and this is different from uh, because of the climate we're in now and because of the uh, you know amount of momentum they created and the anger that people have about um, the wealth inequality is that in the past, that because of the labor laws, et cetera, um, that um, it's been very difficult and slow moving to organize one factory at a time. And that gives the anti-union uh, consultants and employers a chance to scare the hell out of people as they did in the South. Um, they get elected officials to speak against it, et cetera. So <clears throat> what it, it seems to me from the outside that they're doing is capitalizing on this momentum that they got um, from uh, winning this great contract. And the way they won the contract was very smart, involving the members at every single stage of the uh, campaign. So with that, the, the non-union workers are looking to the UAW and saying, hey, um, if they can get this, we can. Because what happened is right after the UAW won, all the employers, uh, non-union employers, started giving their employees big big raises. And the reason they did that is so they can say, well, you don't need a union. Look what we did. Um, and they go through all this BS. We're family, blah, blah, blah. They're just going to take your money. So what it looks like the UAW is trying to do is, um, in, in a different way than they've been doing, is to just um, allow or urge the workers to self-organize um, and to go for an election uh, as quickly as they can. But in union elections, the, the theory is, um, in the operating theory is the law says you have to get 30% 
of the employees to sign authorization cards to have an election. Uh, that you almost never win an election with employer opposition if you get 30%. Um, so the UAW and most uh, unions that have had successful campaigns uh, get 70% to sign authorization cards, that that indicates that the union is something that the overwhelming majority of the people want. It means they've been able to build a good organization inside the company so people feel uh, represented, et cetera, et cetera. So it looks like they're trying to do a lot of uh, really fast self-organizing, uh, doing trainings for worker leaders, et cetera. Um, it's much more difficult to organize a big plant uh, than it is, say, a small Starbucks, et cetera. Um, and there's much more ability for the anti-union uh, consultants hired by the company and the managers uh, to to play games with people, to pit people against each other, to pit departments against each other, uh, et cetera. So it's kind of an open question uh, whether this strategy is going to work or not. Um, you know, I'm really hopeful that it will. Um, but how, it, how, different, it, how different is it from when, I, as I believe, you worked on the attempts to organize Nissan down in the south somewhere? And, yeah, uh, I, yeah, I, I was a distant worked on it, but uh, yeah. that it, it's it's completely different. Um, that um, because of the the public nature of the uh, of the UAW fight uh, uh, to get their contract, they're making this a public fight from the very beginning, um, and it's seen as a much more of a movement than just as a one one off organizing. Uh, the thing that the question that I have and that other people have is, are they going to have the sort of the skills and patience internally uh, to be able to self-organize, to stand up against the employer campaign? Um, and will this be enough to withstand the public pressure? Uh, in the past, the UAW has tried, uh, in my opinion, did it way under-resourced, um, did not devote nearly enough uh uh, resources and staff time to training member internal member organizers to own the campaign uh, and that did not have sort of the public political clout um, uh, to make workers feel protected. Um, and one of the, the major problems in the South in particular is that a lot of these uh, auto jobs are better than any other jobs around. Even though they still, you know, workers are injured, they're stressful, uh, they're still underpaid, the companies are still making billions of dollars, um, but compared to looking around, so they play on that a lot. So, I'm going to go back a little bit, uh, back to our, our, our the article, uh, and they uh, another quote in the article uh, was, not every employer puts up a fight when their workers move to unionize. The American Federation of Labor, Congress, Industrial Organizations, that's the AFL-CIO, a federation of 60 national and international labor unions representing 12.5 million working people, reached an agreement with Microsoft in which the software giant agreed to remain neutral if any of its workers decide to unionize. This is good news for the workers in the burgeoning tech sector and places Microsoft in a sharp contrast to most of its peers. Other tech titans like Amazon, Alphabet, and Tesla have fought tooth and nail to de either defeat their own workers' union drives or scare them out of even considering signing a union card. Any thoughts on that? Well, when uh, the National Labor Relations Act, which governs the uh, way unions are formed in the U.S., was um, was originally conceived and passed in the 40s that the idea was that whether or not to have a union would be decided by the workers themselves, uh, not about the company or versus the workers. It was whether the workers wanted it. The company's role was to, to be neutral and couldn't interfere. Uh, over the years, the law has changed and the interpretation has changed to allow companies to, to fight the union like crazy. Um, that the neutrality agreement that Microsoft signed, and hopefully they'll live up to it, 
um, is extremely rare uh, these days. Um, ben and Jerry's um, ice cream did one as well. Uh, that that the goal always uh, is to ask employers to say, "Stay out of this. Let us decide," um, and so on. So um, it's a it's a really good thing that Microsoft did it. I hope they live up to it, and I hope the employees take advantage of it. But it should be the goal. Uh, of community organizations, of churches, of everybody that wants a more just society to urge employers to stay out of this. This is the employee's business, whether they want to form a union. Uh, most employees want to do a good job. They also want to be able to make a living. And so it's in the benefit of society uh, for uh, the wealth gap and the uh, um, yeah, for the wealth gap and the income gap to be closed, and the unions are the only, if not best, vehicle uh, for doing that. Uh, Bob, let me uh, let's go look forward a little bit. When I was growing up, uh, going backwards, I always thought of as uh, you know the working people were for the Democrats and were for unions. Uh, it's not quite that clear and simple, but uh, we do like we do think that labor is generally on a more progressive bent than certainly the Republicans. And uh, I'm wondering what you think the role of labor will be in uh, the upcoming election in November, as well as what you think we ought to be doing now getting ready for that election. Um, well, I suspect that organized labor uh, will be uh, endorsing uh, Biden. Uh, some have already. Um, I, I hope, which I don't know, is that that means that uh, unions internally will begin doing uh, a lot of political education so they can mobilize their members and not just donate money to TV ads. Um, that the one of the reasons that um, so much of the Midwest used to be, uh, you know, a progressive place was because there were unions, and unions are a way that working people uh, get political education and uh, learn about what's going on, as opposed to looking at uh, Fox News or MSNBC or something. So I'm hoping that unions do that in a one-on-one -on -one, uh, basis with their membership. Whether they will or not, I don't know. I know that some of the young, you know, new young people who are organizing um, have. Uh, are going to do that and so on. Um, but that's that's what I hope they do because there's a huge resource of people, there's organizers, et cetera. Um, and I hope it doesn't I hope it doesn't become an either or between union organizing uh, versus working on politics, which sometimes it has in unions. Um, but I think they go hand in hand and they should continue to do that. Um, you know, I think that um, People just need to understand that this is a long-term fight um, and that there's going to be two choices for president. Uh, one is a, is a fascist. Um, and so labor organizing and any hope of a revitalization will go away if Trump is uh, elected again. Um, that, um, you know, Biden's done some good things for unions. Um, he's in a difficult situation. Um, you know, I worry, I think about Lyndon Johnson, those of us who are old enough, uh, think about Lyndon Johnson and part of the way with LBJ led to Nixon. Um, so I, you know, I just hope that people can understand that there's going to be one of two people elected president and it'll make a huge difference as far as whether we can build a progressive movement in the future. Bob, in a minute or so we have left, uh, we started off, you know, I started off the show talking about both you and Steve Goldsmith being uh, compatriots, partners and pals, comrades in joint community union. Uh, in my new book on Rising Up Angry, you have a piece at the end about things you learned from uh, a joint community, joint community union. Why don't you just talk a little bit about as we go out about being an organizer, some of the things you learned and were inspired by? Uh, uh, well, being an organizer is great because you get to 
uh, learn about all kinds of people and you get to join together with people who many you would never run into in your normal uh, life if you weren't an organizer and go through life-changing events with them. Um, the, the feeling of uh, people who go through a union campaign or winning a rent strike or uh, winning a strike with a, a union, all of those things are like both uh, life-altering for the individuals as well as making material improvements in people's lives. And for an organizer to be able to experience that and to be able to get to know people all over the place and have that deep connection with them in struggle for something better and bigger than ourselves is a real privilege. Um, and so I think being an organizer is great and I'm lucky that I got to do it and happy. Well, I'm glad we've gotten to run into each other a lot over the years. Uh, you do inspire me uh, a lot, Bob. I want to share that with you. And I'm very grateful to have been your uh, your coworker, your partner, your comrade in a couple of organizations. And um, I think we're close to running out of time. So I think uh, I'm going to say uh, thank you very much to not only Bob Lawson and Steve Goldsmith for coming on and talking about their experiences and their views on things as well as our music producer, Lynn Orman, our engineer, Hal James, our co-producers, Katie Hogan and Tom Clark. We will uh, see you next week, and I'm sure we'll have some interesting guests for you, so have a good week. See you around. All power to the people, over and out. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Live from the Heartland show on Spotify Podcasts. New episodes air every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time. You can listen on Apple Podcasts by looking up Live from the Heartland. Episodes are broadcast on WLUW each Saturday at 9 a.m. on the left end of your dial, 88.7 FM in Sweet Home, Chicago, or streaming everywhere worldwide at WLUW.org. If you want to tune in a day early, episodes are broadcast on Lumpen Radio Fridays at 9 a.m. on 105.5 FM and streaming at lumpenradio.com. Video episodes are available on Fridays beginning at 9 a.m. on youtube.com slash heartlandmedia and also on Can TV each following Thursday at 9 p.m. on Channel 21 or streaming everywhere else at cantv.org. I'm Michael James, and I'm glad to have been your host. Until next time, remember, do good in the world because the world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that we do together. All power to the people. Over and out. Gone to limb. Are you doing the best you can? <laughs> Tell me, are you doing?